open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 8 this morning. We'll read the whole chapter in just a few moments. I was speaking with some friends just the other day, and they had attended a wedding ceremony of family, and it was family from a very different culture and even religion, and they knew they were were at a wedding ceremony, but almost nothing else gave that away. All of the symbolism was foreign to them and confusing, and they only knew it had something to do with the wedding of these two family members. Well, we've grown up where and when we've grown up, and uh, wedding ceremonies as we know them aren't prescribed as we do them in the Bible. Uh, But you would know what a ring is, a sign of permanence and the beauty of marriage, and, and you would know what vows are, and you would recognize the, the wedding dress as a wedding dress fit for that occasion, and all the symbolism that goes into a wedding ceremony indicates a, a change of status and, and role, status to married and, and role of husband and, and wife. A presidential inauguration comes with its own collection of symbols and movements that indicate a change of status and role. Ceremonies come with symbols and movements that indicate a change of status and role. And today we come to a ceremony with symbols and with movements that indicate a change of status and role. Let's read it together. Leviticus chapter 8. Listen as I read. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied a sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils at the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. 
And he brought the bowl of the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bowl of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with the fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with the water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb and on his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat on the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil And one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, and what remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to complete. It will take seven days to ordain you. As that had been done today, as has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days." Performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for I have, for so I have commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. And this is God's word for us today. Well, where are we exactly? In terms of where we're at in the book, we've skipped about a chapter. You might have noticed that. Last week, we left off about midway through chapter 6. 
That's because, you can thank me, there's some repetition, even more than we've experienced in Leviticus so far. So you remember, we've been through five different offerings, and the, the Israelite has a part to play in each offering, and the priest has a part to play. And in those five offerings that we've read about, uh, the, the, the Israelite was foregrounded and the priest was involved there. But in the section that we're skipping, basically we get the same material over again, but written directly to the priests. I've assumed that material in the previous sermons. You're welcome. We might do this a bit through Leviticus. Uh, you'll think, I've been through this exact terrain before. Yes, yes, yes. He's speaking to the priests. So we're in chapter 8, not where we left off. And we're at the entrance of the tent. You notice how the, uh, the, the chapter begins. Assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Well, we've been here so far throughout, throughout the book. The book began at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And it's here at a tent of meeting where God intends to meet with his people. He has determined that he will dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. Let me read with you a few verses from the book of Exodus to reinforce this and to put this in his own words, for he said it and will let him speak for himself. Exodus 25 and verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary, that's the tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. That's what the tent is doing there. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And in Exodus 29, we get something along these lines as well. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And why did God do that, redeem his people? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God's purpose is to dwell among his people. And as we've said, as the book of Leviticus closes out, they build this tabernacle, and that's all very exciting, until they can't meet with God. For the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has come down to dwell with his people, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If you weren't with us for our first week in this book of Leviticus, we spent our time largely in the book of Exodus, which gives this story of God coming to save his people and then coming to meet with his people. And then there's the problem that God is holy and we are sinful and there's no meeting that's going to take place as long as our status is such and as long as he is holy and praise God, he remains holy. Well, here in chapter 8, we are again and remain at the entrance of the tent. But now we've got all of Israel assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. It's good to remember the, lo the location where we're at. And we're coming to a new section. If the tent of meeting is a point of transition between heaven and earth, it's where God touches down to dwell, then chapter 8 is also a point of transition transition. We are entering a new section in the book. 
If the book's big question is how can God, a holy God, dwell with sinful humanity or a God who is life in himself dwell with humanity who remains under the curse and in the realm of death, how can we get these two parties together? And if the first answer to that question is you're going to need sacrifice and we've explored five different sacrifices in order as they came to us, a burnt offering, a grain offering that usually goes with that one, and then a peace offering, and then a sin offering and a guilt offering. We're going to need those. And why do we have five? Jesus is just one offering, yes, but each of these five is displaying something particular, which we will review in part today. Particular that cannot be displayed if it's trying to, if each offering is doing everything at once. You'll see God's wisdom and kindness in this as we review these offerings in today's text. But today comes to a transition. If the weeks before have been prescriptive, this is what you're going to offer, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take this animal and you're going to do this. Well, today's text is descriptive. We're watching. This actually play out for the priests, at least. There's another indication that we're at a point of transition in the book. Look at verse 37 of chapter 7. He brings the laws of sacrifice to a conclusion. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on the Mount of Sinai. On the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So now Moses, this author here, is foregrounding the location again. It's been a little while. It's been since the beginning of the book. But now several mentions to where we're at and what God has done. This is the law of the offerings. This section is concluded. Now the Lord speaks to Moses, take Aaron and your sons with him. And we're off into a new section of Leviticus. I'm paying a little more attention to that because Leviticus is famously difficult to read, but I just want to show you the ways in which the author is helping us along as we read. We've had a section of laws, but those laws about sacrifice have come embedded in a story, and now the author is highlighting the location and the moment of that story that we are in again. And in this case, we actually get story We're watching something unfold as we move from prescription, here's what you're going to do, now to description, watch it happen. And here we meet the priests. Moses is going to act as a priest for Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's sons. And And Aaron's sons are inaugurated as priests over Israel to work the tabernacle. The first answer to the question, how can we get humanity and God together, is you need the right sacrifice. The second answer to that question begins here, and we'll go through the next three chapters and three sermons. You need the right priest. You need somebody holy to offer your holy sacrifice. Now, priests aren't new at this point. Noah 
offered sacrifices before all of this was set up. Uh, Abraham offered sacrifices. Job offers sacrifices on behalf of his family. It seems, it seems that the head of a home may have operated as a kind of a mini-priest. In fact, there is language used all the way back in the first chapters of the Bible for Adam as he worked and kept the garden, that sanctuary place of the presence of God where God specially meant, met with his people. There's very particular language used for Adam's keeping the garden that any Israelite who lives within this Levitical system, this priestly system, would recognize as priestly language. It's only used in places like this of the priesthood and then of Adam in the garden. So priesthood is not just about sacrifices. Priesthood is about keeping the place of God's presence and enjoying his presence with him, even mediating his presence. And so humanity from God's Creation was intended to be one who walks in and enjoys and mediates, extends the presence of God. And so here we have an official priesthood established because at this point in God's plan, Israel, a nation, God's people, needed an official priesthood in order to meet with him in his official place of the tabernacle, which remember is a kind of symbolic model tent home to teach us about what it means to meet with God, who he is and who we are and what is needed to get together. And the priesthood, this priesthood with these details is part of God's intention to teach us about what it takes to get us together with him. So, What kind of priest do we need in order to live with God? We're going to walk along the ground of the text and glean what we can. And then at the conclusion, we'll turn to the book of Hebrews and connect all of this with what we believe concerning Christ and his church. What kind of priest do we need to live with God? Let's see how Leviticus can help us answer that question. In this chapter, a ceremony ordaining Israel's priests. The first way we'll answer that, and there will be seven answers, is that we need a priest who represents us. We need a priest who represents us. Notice here in the first several verses that Moses takes Aaron and his sons and the garments and all the gear, their bag full of stuff and also some animals, And they assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent. The whole congregation is going to be here. They're to witness what is about to happen. And through this episode that we're going to rewatch unfold, God is teaching the whole community something. And so he's teaching us something. And what is he teaching them? Well, he has told them they need sacrifices in order to meet with him. And now, before they offer sacrifices, that's going to happen in the next chapter. We get this chapter. Apparently, something else is needed. Priests are needed. Representatives are needed, in other words. Somebody from the people to stand in as a priest for the people. 
a mediator, we could call it. I chuckled a bit. I think it was, I don't remember what age my kids were at. Maybe they were old enough to say the word and understand it. I think it was something like third or fourth grade at school. There were little mediators established for each classroom. And I would hear about the mediator. And the mediator, this is interesting, what is the mediator for? As I recall, these were maybe good citizens, you know, kids that could kind of get along with people and might be better than others at helping other kids get along. And it makes sense if I'm a teacher, I'd like some recruits out there helping me keep people quiet and setting a good example and taking some pride in, in being on my team and, and where needed, helping other kids work things out. Because there are scuffles and there are disagreements. And in this classroom, there would be mediators to help kids work out those disagreements. Brilliant. If you think if you were in a, a situation that requires you to go to court, you're in some kind of trouble, whether by your own doing or someone else's, whether you want to be there or not, and you might hire an attorney, somebody who understands all the details of the court processes and legal processes, who will get it right and not mess it up. And that attorney will represent you in court and mediate for you, if you will, a go-between you and the other party. And the other party, in most circumstances, will have their own attorney and not speak on their own behalf for the same reasons. Someone who understands the system and how it works, who will get things right and mediate for them on your attorney for your best interests and their attorney for their best interests. Mediators. Well, Israel was to be a mediator for the presence of God to the whole world, a a go-between, a stand-in between God and the world. Just as Adam was a was a a representative of God, bearing his image like a coin bears an image. Adam and humanity, we bear God's image, and in that way we're stand-ins for God. We're mediators of God's presence in the world. So Israel, God called them out of the nations, he says, in order that they would be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This special people would know his redeeming love as he saves them, and then he would give them the grace of his law to instruct them in how to live within his blessing and the blessing of his presence. And so Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, mediators between God and all of humanity. And what Israel is learning right here, in this moment, gathered before the tent, The tent's set up. God wants to dwell with us. We have a problem. Moses can't get in. We need sacrifices. Now they're learning. We also need a mediator. We need a priest. This kingdom of priests needs priests to mediate God's presence to us. And the reason is because of human sin. And even the whole setup of the tabernacle reflects this layered order of things. The holy of holies, this most inner place, Only the high priest could go once a year. And then you had the holy place where the consecrated, these priests, could go daily. 
And then you had the outer court where the people, the people of God, Israel, where they could, they could be. A priestly layers all the way into the very hot spot of the presence of God in the middle. Priests, representatives. There are similarities between our understanding of a mediator, whether kids it's in your class, someone to help to get along, or in, or in a courtroom. Uh, but there are some differences. There are some differences, an important, crucial difference actually, which I'll note in a few moments. Let's keep moving. The first answer to our question of what kind of priests we need to live with God, what kind of priest you and I need is one who represents us. Well, the second answer to that question is that we need a priest who represents heaven, who represents heaven. That's probably not what you were thinking when we read about those garments. First thing Moses does with Aaron and his sons is he washes them It's a kind of a purification rite, but the bulk of this little section is on clothing them, putting clothes on them, very particular clothing. You think, wow, Moses was really into fashion, wanted his boys and grandkids to look good. Now, this was highly symbolic clothing. Remember, this this is a ceremony. Don't let this stuff spook you too much. These, are, these, this, this, these garments are highly symbolic clothing that are suitable for the kind of task and role that the priests would take up. So, think with me about a uniform, for example. So, you're watching your favorite basketball team, and they're running about in fairly flowy shorts, and shirts that let your arms move. The shoulders are exposed. The movement. Uh, swimmers wearing a little bit less. Football players. Some padding and a helmet. This is gear that is appropriate to the role. A soldier. Highly symbolic uniform. Certain uniforms for when they are in combat on the front lines, often enough for disguise, certainly for identification among themselves. So we're familiar with this idea of a uniform, even a wedding dress is a kind of wedding uniform fit for the kind of moment uh, that we're in. Well, this uniform, let me read this to you again. There are extensive details about this outfit found in Exodus 28. And Moses, in writing Leviticus, is good to us not to repeat all those details. Credit where credit is due. I spent some time in Leviticus, Exodus chapter 28 earlier this week, and there are important things happening here which I'll indicate and allude to. But let's just read this again here. Verse 6, and Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water, and he, he put a coat on him, and he tied the sash around his waist, and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and 
On the turban in front, he set the gold plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. This robe would be a fairly typical first piece of an outfit. It would have been blue here, extended most the length of the body. There would have been a big hole on top, so you would slide into this thing. You put your robe on. The ephod would have been sleeveless, made of fine twisted linen and gold held together with a waist band, two gold shoulder pieces, two plates of stones embedded with fine gold filigree. The 12 names, a name each for the 12 tribes of Israel would have been embedded on these shoulder pieces. There was another place on this outfit as well where the names of Israel would be born. And this is, this is to communicate that when the, when the priest goes into the presence of God, see, represents us, takes the names of the people of God with him, he goes as a representative. There's the breast piece. Twelve gemstones representing again the twelve names of Israel. The Urim and the Thummim likely a means of discerning the will of God. Maybe something like casting lots or rolling dice or something. But this is a way that God would lead the people through the priests. The priests instructed the people in the will of God. So they did more than just sacrifices. They mediated God's presence. They instructed in his will and they did sacrifices, as we'll see. And you have this turban that is put on the head, and on it the words, holy to the Lord. This priest was to represent Israel with holiness to the Lord. Oh, it's good to have a representative that would be holy, wouldn't it? Otherwise, there isn't any standing or living in the presence of God, apart from a representative, but God in his kindness has provided a representative for the people so they might, through that representative, meet, meet with him. But I said that the priest represents us, but we also need a priest that represents heaven. Why am I saying, why am I saying that? Well, it's interesting. There are royal overtones with this package of clothing and this outfit. Uh, the robe, a robe was typical for a king or a, or a prince. Uh, the color blue was typically that color identified with a royal kingly administration. A, a turban, that language for that, that hat, that headpiece is associated with crowns. And there's the language here of an emblem, which is the language used of crowns. There's Royal overtones here, a royal priesthood they are to be. They're a people that belong to heaven's king, who are represented here through a priesthood in heaven's presence. And this is the point of all of this garb, that heaven's king will dwell with his kingly people, and he will do it in a holy place that is kept by a holy priesthood. Friends, there is no meeting between man and God. There is no surviving in the presence of God. There is no knowing the personal presence of God apart from his initiative to provide a holy priest. 
you need a holy priest. And God is kind here to provide it for his people, Israel. It's interesting too, let me just remind you, we spent some time on this subject when we were in the book of Genesis a few years ago, and we've spent some time on it when we were in Exodus, the year after that, but only for three weeks. And I want to remind you that the tabernacle system, this little tent that is set up, is meant to be, as we've said recently, a portal into the heavens. It looks ahead to the whole new creation when God's presence will fill the whole earth, but it also looks back in its symbolism to the presence of God in the garden. And an Israelite reader who lived inside this system would receive the book of Genesis and read it and recognize the connections and the symbolism. We usually read Genesis, we think Genesis came first and I read Genesis because in history it came first, Exodus and then Leviticus. But consider that the people of God receive the book of Genesis after the Exodus. They receive it as those who live underneath this system. And so just some reminders, and these are from a scholar, T. Desmond Alexander, who's really good at making these things clean and simple. That the tabernacle menorah, the lampstand in the tabernacle, likely symbolizes the tree of life. Decorations that adorned the temple, called to mind the the garden. That the Hebrew verbs for to serve and till and to keep used in Genesis are the same words used through the rest of the first five books of the Bible to describe the Levites' priestly work in the sanctuary. If we were to go and read that chapter I mentioned about clothing, that long chapter in, in Exodus, we would read about gold and onyx mentioned there on the priestly garments. The gold and onyx are two materials that are highlighted in the ground that, that fashion Eden in that original temple. That the Lord walks in Eden as he later does in his tabernacle among the people. And thinking ahead to the later temple, there's a river flowing from Eden and the prophets will prophesy a day when when water of life and rivers flow from the temple. So what we're looking at right here, and we've got this little picture on your screen to remind you of where we're at. Where we're at is a little model that calls to mind that original Eden paradise with God and looks forward to the day when all of creation is his paradise presence. And the priesthood, this priest, even in what the priest is wearing, is reminding us that not only does he represent us, but he is a man when he's operating as a priest from heaven. He is a go-between heaven and us. And so get this, here's a difference between a mediator in a classroom working things out between two aggrieved parties, negotiating the way forward. In court, I have my attorney and they have their attorney. Well, in this case, the Lord speaks to Moses. The Lord provides the mediator for us. Who is the aggrieved party? God is. There's only one aggrieved party. There's not two aggrieved parties. There's only one that needs the mediator and it's us. But we don't go get it. He provides it.
You see? Heaven's king will dwell among his people in a holy place through a holy royal priest. Third answer to the question, and these will pick up speed as we're building on our work here. We need a priest that is set apart for the job. We need a priest that's set apart for the job. In verse 10, you'll notice there's this anointing with oil. Uh, He anoints the tabernacle and all that's in it, consecrates them. He sprinkles some of it on the altar seven times, anoints the altar and its utensils, consecrates them. Then he pours some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anoints him to consecrate to consecrate him. Consecration, setting these things apart for a special work, making them holy. The tabernacle, the altar, and all the gear that's involved is set apart to God as holy. Or, another way to say it, purified from sin, its effects, its stain, and from the effects of death. Right? We're setting apart a kind of a quarantined environment where God can dwell and not be tainted with sin and death. But then he pours it on Aaron. And this is a way of symbolizing that by pouring this oil to set apart Aaron, Moses and God is through him setting apart this whole priesthood, Aaron and his sons. And in setting apart the priesthood, he is sanctifying and setting apart all of his people as a royal priesthood. All of that is going on right here. So let's reflect on the job of a priest then. So he's set apart for the job. What is the job of a priest? I want to give you a couple images. A couple images that may be familiar enough. The idea of a priest um, is clouded in our imaginations with some wrong associations just because of the course of history and time. We may think that priests, when you think of a priest, you may think, you may have good thoughts, you may think uh, an individual that keeps you at arm's length from God. Uh, During the period of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, a return to biblical Christianity and the gospel, these kinds of things we're talking about. Uh, The Reformers wanted everyone to have a copy of God's Word in the language they spoke so they could understand it, and the priestly class would not allow it. In that way, they wanted to reserve for themselves a special class of closeness with God and remain the mediators for people between God and man. But that office is foreign to New Testament Christianity, as we'll see. No, priests are here to make it possible for God to meet with man. So think of a power plant worker, a nuclear power plant worker. You're dealing with a hot uranium core that when exposed and unmanaged would leak radiation and could kill. And in the same way, the presence of God touching down in the tabernacle, His glory, the brightness of His holiness in a world of death and sin would destroy everything. And so it has to be managed And like a nuclear power plant worker is trained to read dials and go through processes and manage the operation, when he does so, that nuclear power plant gives life to the community, 
and he must follow the directions. Well, this anointing with oil in other places in the scriptures, you'll see is connected with the giving of the spirit, the setting of the spirit on one, the anointing, the setting apart by the spirit of a leader, a king or a priest, in this case, priests. A special certification credential to do this kind of deadly work in order that God might give his life to the community. So nuclear power plant workers. Another image you can think of to understand the work of a priest would be that of a bridge builder. A bridge builder. I don't know why Facebook is doing this lately. I must have read something about bridges or something. But recently it advertised to me an article of an ancient bridge that is still being used. And I should go click on it so I could use it for illustrative material the next time this illustration becomes handy. But you know, you've got these old bridges that Rome built, very old bridges that are still around and being used. And there's, there's technical work that goes into holding up a bridge in order to connect two sides of a river, for example, that otherwise you can't cross. And so priests are like bridge builders operating the tabernacle so that a chasm between God and man may be bridged. And God provides the priests for this very reason. This oil would represent a blessing flowing down over the head of Aaron and blessing through the priesthood to the people. So the priests are like little bridge builders that provide a way for the blessing of God to flow to the people of God. And another illustration would be that of party hosts. Maybe you've been a party host before, like putting parties together. Well, the oil here would be also called the oil of gladness. It's something that a host would bring out. This is an indication that we're in for a good time together with eating and feasting. And there is eating and feasting that goes on. So these priests are set apart for the job. And we need a priest that's set apart for the job. A power plant worker to work the presence of God so that his life may give life to the community. A bridge builder so that his blessing may flow from heaven to his people. Like a party host so that his gladness was overflow and feasting and fellowship with us. So we need a priest that's set apart for the job. And here's what this means, friends, is that there is no way to God access to his life, his blessing, his fellowship and the gladness of it, apart from a priest that he consecrates. God provides the means for meeting with God. And in an age when we're all making up our own way to God, we're shrinking him down to be too much like us. Oh, Leviticus will teach us that God is not like us. Oh, but he provides a way to him nevertheless. There is one way, and it is through the way that God provides and the priesthood he inaugurates. Well, Moses has consecrated three things, and now we go about three 
sacrifices. Did you recognize them if you're with us over the last few weeks? We need a priest who is unstained from sin and death, verses 14 through 17. This is, of course, a sin offering. Now you can appreciate what Moses has done in giving us this book the way that he did. This is a complicated ceremony that we're about to watch, that we're watching. It's very complicated. But he has slowly walked us through a process of explaining how these different offerings work so that when we go to watch it happen now on the page, we go, aha, I know what that is. I know what that is. And there's a little bit less learning for us to do. At least as the preacher, I'm glad I can unfold this over weeks and not have to do it all at once. We need a priest who's unstained from sin and death. That's what the sin offering is for. Remember, it's a, it purifies from sin and the effects and presence of sin. Purification offering is a bit of a better translation. As light destroys dark, so life destroys death and holiness destroys sin. And because we're from the realm of death... And because we are sinners, God's presence in us don't go together. We are not safe in it. And so there's a sin offering even for the priests because they need it too. They're from the race of Adam with his problem just like us. And the sin offering deals with these things. You think of a a decontamination process that you may have had your house go through. If you've ever had mold of any kind, you get out of the house, you decontaminate the house. It was a few years ago, we, uh, my little daughter Nora, we had nicknamed her Peppermint Patty. I don't know what we were doing with essential oils, but we had this essential oil and um, we threw it on, you know, she found this little thing, it was, must have been this big, and she threw it on the ground just like she would and peppermint, the whole house, the whole house for a while. We were, we were gone for a better part of a week, windows opened. There's other kinds of things in there we were studying to make sure we could go back. In any case, that's the closest I've been to danger as it concerns a toxic house. But, you know, for whatever reason, you've had to defumigate your home. Or maybe we've been through a kind of a pandemic where there's infectious diseases. And if you're near somebody or in contact with somebody, you have to quarantine. You get the idea. There's a kind of quarantining from death. Quarantining from Sin, the sin offering, has a way of purifying us. Remember, the blood is an agent, a cleansing agent. The blood represents death as punishment for sin in our stead as the animal dies. But blood also represents life. Life is in the blood as a purification from the stain of death. And so the priests are themselves, their sin is dealt with through the punishment of the animal, but then they are also purified from the stain of sin and death through the sacrifice. Now the fifth answer to the question, and another sacrifice. We need a priest who is wholly devoted to the Lord. Verses 18 through 20. The whole ram is to be offered for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Remember, sacrifices just aren't about taking sin away but giving to God the whole life. And as this ram was put up on the altar and killed and the entire thing was burnt, so the smoke went up into the heavens and that picture taught Israel that the Lord took pleasure in the devotion of our whole life to him. 
But because we're sinful and we come to him sinful, so in our stead goes this animal up into heaven, the whole thing, and nothing is left. And so the priests have this offered as well. We need a priest, sixth, whose joy is in fellowship with the Lord. There is this ordination offering, and that's new language here. It is a species of the peace offering. Remember the peace offering. The peace offering was special. What was unique about it? That's what we always ask. What's unique about this offering? What's unique about this offering? The whole burnt offering, the whole thing is given to God. That makes that point. He needs and gets and takes pleasure in our whole life given to him. And this is why we have more than one sacrifice. Because the peace offering, we eat as well. So that whole offering is given to God, but he also wants to make the point that he wants to feast with us. And so the peace offering is given and then we get to eat as well and even invite our friends. The ordination offering works roughly like that. It's just for the priests and for this ordination special ceremony occasion. An indication the kind of priest we need is the kind of priest who fellowships in the presence of God. And seventh, we need a priest who is faithful to the Lord in all things. Now, let me tie some nerd things together from our reading. But they're all useful. There are all kinds of nerd things I don't give you from our studies, by the way. But these things are important. We're talking here in Leviticus, in this chapter, about a complete consecration Blood from head to toe. Remember that? The ears, hands, feet. The right side is the favored side, so the right side gets all the blood. The priests are marked with blood, indicating that they are entirely from head to toe side uh, consecrated to the Lord. What they hear by way of others' confessions, that's consecrated to the Lord. Their hands and all the handling that they'll do in the tent, that's given to the Lord. And their feet, wherever they will go in the tent, they're consecrated to the Lord. And you'll notice that the blood was sprinkled at the altar seven times. And now here, mentioned three times, seven days you'll stay, seven days you'll stay, seven days you will stay. There's a whole week process they will go through, indicating the completion of their consecration to the Lord. But this priesthood, consecrated to the Lord through seven days, must be wholly obedient to the Lord. Another seven This first seven chapters came to us in seven divine speeches. This chapter, chapter 8, where we meet the priesthood, comes to us in seven different steps. Each step ending with the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. It begins with that, they're to do all the Lord commanded, and it ends with that. They've done all the Lord commanded. And seven times along the way, we get the refrain. And the point is, meticulous care must be given to faithfully obeying all that the Lord has commanded. Or this is not going to work. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 5. You can also listen if you don't have the word with you. Listening is just as well. 
This word for ordination could best be translated a filling up, filling up the hands. In Jesus' day, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that translated that word for filling up an ordination, made perfect, perfected. Let's keep that in mind. The priests in Leviticus, the Aaronic, the Aaron and his sons were to be ordained or filled up, given the job and all that they needed. They were to be perfected, perfected for the job. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. His death was an ordination offering in which he was made perfect as a priest for us. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, getting into who that character is is mostly for another sermon, but turn your page over to chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that's what we're learning about in Leviticus, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Because later in the Old Testament, there is promised one who will come who is a priest after a different order, not Aaron, not the Levites. Now verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. Do you see all that? Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, having ascended there. He has no need like those other high priests that we're reading about to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now chapter 9. Verse 12 and 14 through 14. He, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places... Not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works, what? To serve the living God. To serve. As the priests serve, because friends, Christians, church, your conscience has been purified by the blood of Jesus, and you have been redeemed and cleansed in order that you might be 
a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so, friends, serve him as priests and mediators of his glorious presence in this world, just as Adam and humanity was always intended to do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks and praise for that one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. We could not think up a more sufficient answer to the problem of how we would meet with you. So we thank you that in the word you have told us all about yourself, as terrifying as that is for sinners like us to hear, and yet you have told us all about your son Christ. Even in Leviticus, you are teaching us about the glory and majesty and mercy of our gracious Lord. You've ransomed us with the blood of a lamb, and you have ransomed us for yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray.